Aljazeera podcast. General elections in Tunisia. Sounds like good news for the nation where the Arab Spring began. But here's what's awkward about it. You see, most political parties, literally big and small ones, they've called a boycott. So where is Tunisia headed now? Could be anyone's guess. Hello everyone, I'm Sami Zaydan and welcome to the Essential Middle East podcast. The Tunisian president dissolved parliament in March after suspending it last year. Saeed did this through a referendum which shifted power from the Legislative Assembly to the presidency. But only 27% of the voters turned out for that referendum, calling into question its legitimacy. With nearly every opposition party expected to boycott next week's parliamentary election, turnout is also likely to be low, estimated at under 35%. Okay, let me give you a bit of background. President Kaysaid shut down an elected parliament last year. Many accused him of staging a coup. Critics accuse Saeed of trying to rule by decree, saying his proposed changes amount to a coup against the constitution. Since last July, the president has sacked dozens of judges, suspended parliament and assumed executive power, maintaining he was ending years of political chaos. He introduced a new constitution that passed in a referendum with kind of a low turnout and a political boycott. Now this election is being run under a new electoral law which bans party lists. So what does this all mean for Tunisia? Let's find out now with our guest. Hello, Sammy. I'm here in actually what is now sunny Tunis. So I'm normally freelance as a live TV reporter and write articles, but mostly political articles for Al Jazeera. I've had front row seats to everything that's been going on. And I've been living here for a number of years, so I've seen a big change happen. And I remember, and I'm glad that we're having this chat today, and let's ask a basic one. Why are the political parties boycotting this election? They're boycotting it because they see it as, there's a variety of views, but they see it as a kind of a sham. One of the big projects for Saeed's regime is to get the IMF loan. And giving an appearance of democracy is part and parcel of getting a refinancing loan. The other thing is that under the new constitution, the parliament doesn't have any power. The new constitution consolidates all powers in the hands of the president, whereas before, under the old 2014 post-revolutionary constitution, the powers of legislative, executive, and justice were all separated as they are in most democracies. So they're boycotting it because in their eyes, it's a very undemocratic set of elections. Mm. And they don't really see that they have a place in it and they're taking a stand against this. So does that mean, basically, the president is going to be even more empowered by these elections if only his supporters are the ones who are going to show up and vote? Very much. The only party that has any enthusiasm is Ashab. And Ashab have supported the president from the get-go. And they've always seen themselves as kind of beneficiaries of his grand plan. But it's a little ironic because this parliament won't have any power. It's just a sort of consultatory talking shop, really. 
And like we saw with the referendum, it's only people who are really gung-ho for close side sort of political agenda that are showing up. If we go by the polls, support for the president has been ebbing away for some time now. And why is that? Basically, most people are more concerned with what's happening you know, in their lives on a day-to-day basis. Tunisia's always suffered with food shortages, but this year has just been a whole different level. There came a point where there are really long queues outside bakeries in the beginning of the year, and it was only thanks to the EU. There was a sort of flour injection that meant that full-on rebellion over Ramadan. But what we've seen is sort of different products have been disappearing. There's a time where you couldn't buy bottled water. Milk is very scarce, and that's often been problematic. Eggs, cooking oil. But the consistent absence of butter has been sort of a sign of misery because it says it's one of those little luxuries. And it's also something that hits the middle classes. I mean, this is the thing is often the narrative around Tunisia is about poverty and go out, we interview some poor guy who's unemployed sitting in a cafe, whereas now it's really hitting hard against the middle classes and it's really pushing people to look for alternatives for their futures and that's why we're seeing more migration. So things like not being able to get simple products or even like simple luxuries like butter, it just adds to the sort of emotional grind that people are facing. And that's what they want solving. They want inflation to be brought down. They want more purchase power in their pocket. People don't want to be driving around trying to find butter to, so they can bake their child's birthday cake. I'm trying to resist the urge to employ so many puns that you're feeding me here with butter and dairy and bakery. I'm going to try my best not to get into that. Oh, we pun all the time. <laughs> this is the thing is people do actually crack endless jokes. Even though things are very hard, the Tunisian love of a good pun and word plays is very much sort of in that vein. A significant part of the population obviously unhappy. Also the political parties are unhappy and there is a bit of a backstory to this, the new electoral law. It's seen as specifically aimed at weakening political parties altogether and encouraging independent candidates. Yes, yeah, very much. It's taken the sort of one person, one vote, one candidate gets one vote, which if you're, say, from someone like Britain, what's the problem with that? It's a very different political landscape. And if we look at the old electoral law, it was a list system. But in that list system of parties, the first person on the list was a man, then the second had to be the woman. So it was man, woman, man, woman, all the way down. If the first was a woman, then the second would be a man, and so on. And there was also a provision for representation of youth as well. And what people are, are kind of really getting wise to is that sort of Kaiside made this sort of big show of it's quite a sort of almost traditional thing in Tunisian politics, sort of state feminism, with the first female prime minister. But people have seen that she's quite a sort of meek person who's constantly deferring to her, and that it is just a load of old pinkwashing. I'm glad you mentioned women, because also it cuts public funding, this new law, right? Election campaigns, and people are saying that's going to target women in particular, who kind of struggle to create the network that can fund them. Yes, exactly. Before, there was a lot more public funding so that women could campaign and also younger people as well. 
the whole thing about the revolution was that it was meant to empower youth. This means there's going to be less youth, less women? Oh yeah, something like over a thousand candidates in total. I think it's only about 126 female candidates Mm. and very few people under 35 or under 40. So it's a sort of returning to the old, much more sort of patriarchal structures. One of the things that particularly international journalists is getting interviews with candidates in the run-up to the election. And there's been some sort of misinformation spread around that it's illegal to talk to the international press. The Association of Foreign Correspondents actually had to send a letter to the presidency and to the higher elections authority and say, what's going on? We're trying to do our job. We're trying to give a platform for different candidates. There's been no feedback at all. They did quite a rare thing, which was to issue a press release saying that... um, kind of been finagled that the candidates think that it's illegal to talk to foreign correspondents. Where is the Electoral Commission in all of this? Is it still independent? In name only, I think, to be honest. It's much harder to get information out of them. This is the irony. They do want the election to be covered by the international press because that, again, that promotes the idea that Tunisia is still a democracy. If you equate elections with democracy, then it's good press for them. But as we know... You still have elections in places like Egypt or Algeria, and I don't think we could define them as open democracies in any shape or form. So there are hundreds of people actually running in the election. Who are they? Are they just supporters of the president? Are they truly independents? They are mostly independents. There are a lot of people that they haven't really played a big part on the political scene. They're much more sort of like sort of local notable figures. And this is one of the other concerns is that people who can afford to run are maybe like local businessmen who've got a vested interest in having a say at the national level. There are a lot of people who've been floated through camps, but there's no big, strong figures. There's not the political names. There's not the political leaders or ideologies that you could identify people with. You might have somebody who used to be in the far left. They suddenly kind of swung more to a sort of more Arab nationalist position but they're still independent. So that's the majority. One of the larger groups fielding candidates is Ishab, who the Arab Nationalist Party. They're quite sort of right-wing. They've been very close to the president. They're very much for the sort of centralising process and this sort of much more almost sort of isolationist policy of keeping Tunisia sort of more isolated from the world than perhaps a more open democratic parties were who were looking much more sort of Europe, Turkey, sort of America globally looking for more global interaction at a political and economic level. This doesn't sound like this election is going to resolve the political crisis. People have been looking at December 17th as a target for elections as if that will be the big event and I really don't think it will be. Traditionally the revolutionary season runs through sort of November, December into January and Kaisai's have changed the official date for the Festival of the Revolution to December 17th, whereas before it was January 14th, which was the day when Ben Ali officially stepped down. So I think we could be seeing a lot more open civil unrest and particularly clashes on January 14th. We also saw members of the press and international press, such as Mathieu Gautier from Liberation, the French newspaper, who was severely beaten and he was dragged to the ground and kicked by police. And certainly in the regions, we're already seeing those kinds of violent protests. There have been a lot of sort of violent protests in a neighbourhood called Hyatt Adarment, which is a sort of informal 
working class neighborhood in Tunis after um, a young man died a month after being beaten by police. So these kind of tensions, they're very much hidden away and they're out of the news. The local press are not reporting them very well. Isn't it strange how history repeats itself? These are the kind of the stories and the scenes that one heard about leading up to the revolution. You mentioned the president's popularity is low. How do we know that? Take us through the polls. Immediately after his paragraph, he was on a real high. Actually, before he did that, his popularity had been waning. People had seen him as quite ineffectual president. But I think because there was so much frustration and a lot of the blame was put on the shoulders of Inahta, it was a very popular move. What really changed things was on September the 22nd when he said he was going to rule by decree. And that really turned Tunisians off because that was like putting up a sign saying, I want to be a dictator. I couldn't give you an actual percentage figure, but generally the confidence in the president has gone down. Though there's a contradictory sort of statistic saying that if there were presidential elections, he'd still win because he's seen as the best of a bad lot. There's unfortunately a lack of confidence in all political leadership. The least unpopular is Najib Shebi, who's the leader of what's called the National Salvation Front. So that's a coalition of political parties, democratic political parties, also in Ahda and civil society. Though it's still seen as a sort of an Ahda vehicle, but he comes out the best out of anybody. And that's quite a big change, yeah. This kind of takes us to a good point to start talking about the political parties and their popularity and performance. But you know what? Let's take a quick break now. And we'll be right back in a moment. We'll pick up on that. With Lionel Messi and Argentina vying for the World Cup, we meet some of their biggest fans, fans who live nowhere near Argentina. Find The Take wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back, everyone. We're still talking about the situation with the upcoming elections in Tunisia. Elysia. Let's talk about the political parties. Supporters of the president would say he's simply making reforms that allow people to bypass corrupt political parties. Do you think that narrative is still popular right now? There still is a certain frustration. I was chatting with somebody on Twitter and he jokingly said, do you know what, I think I'll just go and demonstrate with the old political parties there's a slight softening towards the other political parties because things are getting so bad. What spoilt the mood of some Tunisians, at least, towards political parties? Was it the bickering, the infighting, the claims of corruption? What was it that turned many people off? One thing was a sort of social change that they saw. They did see what people thought was an sort of increased Islamization of culture and that there was a shift away from what they called a more sort of secular, fun-loving society. But Tunisians has always been quite conservative. So how true that is, I don't know. I only came to work in Tunisia in 2016. What really frustrated people over the last year was the bickering and the fighting. And Side was part of that as well. There was a deadlock between side, Mishishi, the, the Prime Minister, and Rashid Ganeshi, who was the Speaker of the House of Assembly. And then it just descended into a total pantomime, really. There was physical violence in the chamber. 
And this kind of behaviour was really disgusting. This came in the second year of corona. This was ahead of a big wave of Delta, and Delta really hurt Tunisia because Tunisians have big extended families. If one person dies of COVID, then it's going to affect a large extended family. Not to mention the economic impact. Things didn't get better after the revolution, all the hopes of a better standard of living. Yes, exactly. Something I've levelled at political parties. Why did you not address the economics? And Side is making the same mistake that the political parties made. They saw political stability came through creating political structures rather than doing a sort of a parallel development process where they were looking at the economics. They seem to fail to understand that 2008 was a global economic crisis. It was hurting the entire world. And it had hit European nations who were their customers. And that was never addressed. And I've had quite a few arguments with quite significant politicians um, about this, particularly in the lead up to 2019 elections, mm. about their absolute failure to really cross the nettle of economics. Has the situation changed at all? Has it improved at all since Kais Saeed has come to power, increased his powers? It's actually got a lot worse. The whole economic situation has just been spiralling down. There's a serious economic imbalance. You've got, unfortunately, a sort of very small cluster or sort of families who own the largest businesses and they also own the banks and they have a policy of zero compete. So it's a real stranglehold on the economy. And what we're also seeing now is that the ministries, particularly the Ministry of Commerce, is freestyling terms of regulations around trade, so much so that the EU have actually sort of written a letter saying what's going on because they've been investing in programmes to increase competition. And you've got the old oligarchs that are trying to push back against any kind of economic reform or development of competition or sort of market stimulation. So in that, the ordinary person is just the meat in the sandwich and they're just being squeezed. So it's almost impossible for young entrepreneurs to really get ahead and create new businesses and push forward. They've not reformed all the administration, which is most Tunisians, when they read Kafka's The Castle, which is all about the nightmares of bureaucracy, they feel like they're reading their lives. It's just crazy. One politician told me it takes 60 different documents to open a bakery. So it's these kinds of things that should have been eased and made simpler. And then after all of that, you may have your bread, but no butter to add insult to injury, I guess. Exactly. One point, they didn't even have bread. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that Tunisia's foreign alliances. What role are foreign powers playing in this? Because Tunisia does receive aid and support from neighbouring and Western countries. There's been a general sort of propping up process, and it's very much a sort of finger in the dance. I suppose the strange economic support is coming from Algeria has long been the big brother to Tunisia. But there was a loan slash gift or loan and financial gift given to Tunisia just last week, but there were no details of how much, nor of the terms of repayment. So things are getting very opaque. Said doesn't do too many foreign trips, but he has been heading to the Gulf. He's certainly been talking to countries like Kuwait. And his next big trip is to go and meet President Biden in Washington, D.C. Is the picture that's emerging here is that Western and regional, more autocratic countries in the region, that they 
actually would like a strong man to stay in power rather than a return to a more democratic system? Possibly. The problem is that Kais is not a strong man. He's a weak man in a strong position. Mm. And that's highly problematic. The problem with Syed is very isolated. He's not really a people person, so he's not even particularly interacting with his own cabinet that much. Can he be challenged, Elysia? The National Salvation Front, the sort of the political parties coming together. How much of a real challenge are they to him? They've managed to remain to be a bit of a thorn in his side. They've not given him an easy time. However, how much power they really have to push back, it doesn't seem that they have quite the popular support. I think the only way that you would see a serious regime change is if you had the kind of mass uprising that saw of Ben Ali, and then you're back to square one again. What would happen after that, I don't know. But certainly there are more and more political parties who are calling for presidential elections as well as legislative elections. Mm. And it also depends on what kind of pressures the EU, uh, America and the other sort of democratic states start to put on Tunisia. And also the conversation with Biden will be very important. At the moment, it seems like they're letting things roll off. The EU and America have, fortunately, much bigger fish to fry in the name of Ukraine and the energy crisis. But Tunisia does have a role to play in that global energy crisis. So they might be small, but they're still a key and strategic place in the world for Tunisia. What about the Labour Union? They're a very powerful force in politics, aren't they? They are, and they've pretty much come out against the next elections. They haven't exactly said boycott. They've said that they reject them, which is a different thing. And it's... Probably quite a sensible way to put it, because a lot of Tunisians and those jokers, oh, there are elections happening? Really? Really? Oh, is it? What? What's happening? The elections are, to most people, such an irrelevance. And if not, they're not an irrelevance, an insult to the intelligence. They are definitely gaining momentum. And they did issue a threat, which is reminding the president that they can bring the country to a halt. Their union members, they work in the power industry, they work in transport, they work in all the major industries. If they want to stop the country, they can. So I think in reality, the Labour Union, Yuji, are the only serious, organised political body that can push back. And we may well see that because what's coming in that's more important than elections is the new finance bill. And that is very unpopular. And also the threats of lifting subsidies on fuel, subsidies on food. These things are very frightening for a lot of people. So if these things start happening, then I think the UGST could use its kind of manpower, its political heft to push back. And we might see a lot more popular movements beginning to push back. If the UGST has impact, if they actually seem to be punching some holes in the armour of the side regime, then I think we could see a lot more popular movement. When are things going to come to a head? What's going to happen and when is it going to happen? It depends how swiftly the economic strife spirals down. There is a point with economies that they hit a momentum of downward spiral where you get hyperinflation. When that will happen is hard to tell and it will hit Tunisia very hard. That said, this is the marching season. 
So we could well see things ramp up, I would say, at the back end of December, January. Certainly they will heat up then. Mm. How impactful, whether it will be a full revolution, we'll have to wait and see. It's been a fabulous chat. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. I've really enjoyed it. And thank you for listening, guys. This episode was produced by Salem el and Khaled Sultan. The research was done by our intern, Riyam al-Jafari. Sound design was by George Wir. Our engagement producer is Ayal Malik and our assistant engagement producer, Munira Dosari. Of course, there's our executive producer, Omar Saleh, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. I'm your host, Sami Zaydan. See you next week. <laughs>